Welcome to the Gensler Design Podcast. The Gensler Design Podcast creates a dialogue between design experts, creative trendsetters, and thought leaders to discuss how we can shape the future of cities through the power of design. I'm your host, David Calkins, the Regional Managing Principal of Gensler's Asia-Pacific Middle East region. Designed for a radically changing world, that is the focus of Gensler's 2023 design forecast. As we grapple with unprecedented changes and challenges, it's crucial for us to have clear vision and unwavering direction. Here are a few questions. Can design play a role in addressing the various challenges facing our cities, such as the ongoing and hopefully receding pandemic, climate crisis, and social inequalities? How can design drive positive change, and how is Gensel using strategic design thinking to make the world a better place? In this episode, I'm both thrilled and honored to have Diane Hoskins, co-CEO of Gensler, as our guest. Diane brings a wealth of knowledge and insights, and we're excited to explore the latest trends, perspectives, and predictions for the design industry in 2023. Diane, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dave. It's so good to be here. Well, it's great to have you back in Asia again, even though it's uh, maybe only virtual this time. So could you uh, introduce yourself to our listeners a little bit and uh, talk about your role as co-CEO of Gensler? Sure. Um, it is really terrific to join you from Singapore. And I do look forward to the next time that Andy and I have a chance to come out there, which hopefully will be this year. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been co-CEO uh, with Andy Cohen for 18 years, which uh, you know sounds like a long time, but man, it's gone by pretty fast. Both Andy and I we were regional leaders. He was the regional leader in the Southwest and, and myself in the Southeast. And prior to that, we were both uh, heads of offices. I led DC and, and Andy led LA. It's been incredible to have uh, such a robust career at Gensler and having the chance to work with so many amazing people like yourself. Well, I wanted to thank you for your leadership in the first place. You know, your steady hand on the wheel and, and your inspirational energy has been great through everything we've muddled through in the last three years. So again, thank you for that. And I think most people have an idea what CEO is, especially here in Asia. They understand it's the big boss. But can you talk a little bit about what it means to be a Gensler CEO? Yeah, you know, it's uh, uh, honestly, it's funny because many times CEO is considered the one on the top of the pyramid, but really the way that we think about it. And, and again, we believe so strongly in collaborative leadership, but it's, it's really we're on the bottom. I mean, our job is to support our people, support our leaders, to try to think maybe a few steps ahead to make sure that we are all able to be aligned and work together toward common goals. So setting a vision is an important part of being the CEO, enabling all aspects, all of our communities, and really trying to keep that radar on what is happening outside and what that means for us inside. And so this conversation that we're going to have today about design for a radically changing world is really the kind of focus that Andy and I have as CEOs, talking about the world, talking about what it means for design and what it really means for us and how it's, yes, a challenge, but also the opportunities that are embedded in it. Well, so that, that's a great segue. So the design forecast. So this is something that you co-wrote at the introduction to it uh, with Andy, Andy Cohen, and that's titled Design for a Radically Changing World. And so talk about that concept a little bit, but also talk about the crisis multiplier that you mentioned in that, if you could. Yeah, this, this concept of design for a radically changing world. Um, and it was, you know, kind of uh, 
peeking our head up, you know, out of above the clouds for the first time in three years uh, since, you know, the pandemic. And, and I think it was really an important moment for the firm and for us to kind of take stock of what we had just all gone through together and remarkably and incredibly. And to really begin to, to recognize that what we learned was, one, we have such amazing resilience as an organization. It has a lot to do with the transformation of design because I think what we allowed ourselves to do was not to be rigid through it, but literally to let the experience redefine us and transform us in really important ways that are important for the future. But it was also, you know, recognizing that the pace and speed at which, you know, we had, of course, the pandemic and then the George Floyd tragedy and then, you know, kind of a refocus back into climate change and the global economic challenges and recession on top of that, of course, geopolitical tensions and this kind of pace at which a lot of these exogenous factors are really coming to bear and are creating a context that is, you know, to hate to call it this, but more the norm, you know, this kind of crisis continuum. We kind of coined this phrase crisis multiplier because in some ways it's beyond just a continuum of successive experiences and, and, they actually, you know, kind of fold in on each other. And, you know, you can take any two or any three and, and pull them together and start to think about, again, a whole set of impacts that are being seen because of the overlapping connected impacts. We see climate and what it means in terms of areas that are disinvested to begin with. So we have these areas where we've got disinvestment over generations, and then we add torrential rains, uh, like we saw in parts of Texas. Certain communities did not fare well, and no community fared well, but it was difficult, you know, when water and power is out and we have, you know, little ability to, to be resilient through it. But that's just one example. I mean, you can kind of layer these things and start to see that there is a multiplier effect that starts to happen. You know, we felt like this theme of not only trying to describe this context, but also to recognize that it's a new day for design, that um, we can't just, you know, put our head in the sand, hope it all goes away, and then go back to what things were like before or designing in the way we designed before. And so this, this broader moniker of design for a radically changing world for us is really kind of a, a huge call to action. It's a focal point for us. In fact, um, Andy and I, you know this, are in, uh, in the process of writing a book that has that title and in a way really putting on paper um, and trying to pull this idea together really, you know, to... Uh, help all of us kind of build upon this notion to recognize and embrace the changes and also to have a, a conversation with our clients about the potential. And this is really the point is, you know, the potential that design has as part of the solutions around these issues. Well, um, I was at the Cornet Global Summit for Asia here the last couple of days. And uh, there was a lot of discussion about work and hybrid working and 
back into the office and how many days in the office and how are we really supporting work and flexibility and different working styles and all sorts of surveys and all kinds of things. What can you tell us about what we've learned just lately about about how we best develop workplace design at this point? Yeah. Um, thanks, Dave. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, our firm has... Uh, brings a lot to this conversation. I hope everyone at Gensler realizes that that we are the experts and we have, because of our longevity in the focus on workplace, we can bring context and perspective. Also, you know, try to help, uh, you know, people see that, you know, this is part of a lo- much longer continuum of change in the workplace that has probably gone on since about 2000, or I would say even the 1990s. And it was this confluence of, of course, technology and laptops and uh, mobility that was within the workplace realm itself. And so the pandemic, you can say, and it has been said that COVID was an accelerant, right? It was an accelerant of things that were already there. And definitely in the workplace, it was an accelerant of trends um, that were already in place and capabilities. And, you know, again, these were all muscles that were already becoming strong. We had, you know, massive, I would say, uh, I don't know, it was like 11 to 15% of people were already using uh, co-working space. You know, we do our surveys and, you know, the amount of people using co-working was significant in one of our, in our 2019 survey. And so again, co-working is outside of your main office and working in another place, a third place. And we've learned so much from that. And so many studies have been done on the, you know, what happened to some of the most, some of the core aspects of, of work, you know, from the standpoint, and we talk about work as four different uh, work modes, focus and collaboration and social connection and learning. And, you know, we definitely found that this that disaggregated work from home approach could certainly support the focus part of the work modes. But it has it had a hard time and it has a hard time with the other three work modes, collaboration, learning, and social connectivity. And so, you know, again, that's where the rub is. That's where the huge difficulty is. And, uh, you know, companies have seen, you know, significant drops. In fact, even in our own surveys, we've seen significant drops in collaboration, learning, social connection. Um, So, you know, again, we're in a very, very robust time right now with, you know, a conversation. Okay, we all agree. None of that is good. But how do we uh, create workplaces that address what people need today? Everybody went through this experience. And we talk about making the office a destination, not an obligation. I think what we're seeing in the data, and there's been a really, and Janet Pogue has done an extraordinary job in being uh, an incredible voice for what we're finding through our most recent workplace survey, which I think is one of our best. And one of my favorite questions that it asks, 
And it's around this this point about office as destination. You know, if you have choices to choose the workplace for the right reasons versus being compelled by, you know, your boss saying you have to do something or not have to do something. And that the office is is offering you and giving you the kind of support, the kind of experiences, the kind of positive, um, you know, reinforcement, encouragement, inspiration, and the kind of, you know, uh, settings that are going to give you the career experience, the life experience that uh, is, is what you're looking for. So this notion of, you know, office's destination so, you know, just to kind of put a fine point on it, and again, you can kind of look up the, the latest survey, but what is interesting was the, there were a list of different kinds of settings from kind of coffee shop to hotel and, and hospitality look and feel to kind of corporate to, you know, all kinds of amenities and so on and so forth. And people had the opportunity to choose kind of what would be the ideal destination if if the office were designed for their specific, uh, what they were looking for. And it was just really, um, it's very fascinating how it breaks down as a very different uh, composite when you look at different industries, anyone from a law firm to a tech company to financial institution, government, et cetera. So it's different for each of those it's also different from the standpoint of generational, you know, so what our, our Zs are looking for versus millennials versus baby boomers versus um, Gen X. And then I think the most critical question, which was, would you be willing to come into the office more if it did have these amenities and this kind of look and feel? And across the board, Every generation was, you know, had a yes, and it said how many more days or what have you. So, you know, you can really see from this, you know, this survey um, information, and I really encourage everyone to take a look, that the design does matter. I mean, that comes through loud and clear. And that if we pay attention to what people are saying, what they need, and really take it seriously, we can, you know, see people coming back into the office again, not because we want them to, but because it is going to give them the kind of experiences they're looking for. Well, that's great. I, uh, you mentioned it, but Gensler.com has got a tremendous amount of information on it. And in fact, I was just amazed during the pandemic, the amount of thought leadership that was generated by the firm, it was just stunning and it's all still there. So if anybody hasn't been to Gensler.com, they can go there and take a look at it. So going back to Design Forecast 2023, um, it's laid out in terms of 10 meta trends. And those are the likes of reclaiming experience, live-work connection, building transformation, attainable housing, decarbonization, and so on. I'm not going to make you go through all 10 of them. We don't have time for that. You don't have time for that. But is there one of them that you could pick that particularly resonates and just you could discuss that one a little bit? Well, I think we just talked about one of them, which I love, which is focusing on the office. But I guess I would say a trend, uh, the, the first one, which is reclaiming experience or, you know, reclaiming human experience is one that, you know, we intentionally put as the first because it underscores all of the other 10 and, and really in many ways is, you know, kind of the 
the mega trend. It is kind of the trend. If we didn't have the other nine, it would be the one that we would have put forward as the most important trend of the year. And, you know, when we talk about experienced during COVID and, you know, thank God for amazing scientists and and doctors and uh, people in uh, the pharmaceutical world who, you know, came up with our uh, vaccines and even beyond that, people who were able to to give us the the kind of guidance in terms of distancing and wearing masks and washing hands and cleaning our homes like crazy. You know, again, all of the kind of guidance that protected billions of people. I mean, uh, I, uh, heart goes out to families who lost loved ones. You know, has been a very very difficult season for us, but. Billions did not have that experience in in many ways because we had uh, amazing people in the health sector that that brought nuance and and insight on a daily basis to all of us. But one of the you know important parts of that guidance was separation, and it was probably the the number one way to begin to hold the the contagion at bay was to separate from each other. While it was our protection, it was our safety, it also um, had you know, serious uh, impacts on, on everyone. There's a reason why you know, when they look at mortality of older people, the, one of the most important pieces is social contact, even beyond all, all of the don't smoke and eat right and exercise and so forth. Above all of that is social connection. Social connection is, is the lifeblood of human beings. And so to have this period of time where we had to separate at the beginning, it was like the only way to uh, protect ourselves. So we did one thing, but in many ways, we created a deficit of connectivity. And so this notion of reclaiming human experience is really about reclaiming human connection. And the role that, you know, our physical places play in being the places where we can come together. Uh, The office is clearly one of those places. You know, the public realm is clearly one of those places. Um, you know, vacation spots, et cetera, all of this uh, is part of going back into the into the physical realm where other people are and experiencing, whether it's people you know or it's people you don't know, but just experiencing that human connection and recognizing just in many ways the deprivation of being able to go to places at will, you know, I think has made us more conscious and appreciative of the places that we can go now and maybe even a little more demanding of those places and wanting those places to be able to have the kind of experiences that we all crave and be places where we can come together. Um, And I think the workplace in a way is like the crucible of all of this because other than our homes, we, we spend as much time in our workplaces as we would at home. And so, you know, I'm not just going there to sit by myself, I'm going there to be with others. And I would say one of the most lasting and probably profound changes in the workplace that that this will have caused is a true recognition and I would say celebration of the fact that, you know, social connection 
is part of work, and there has to be space for that in the workplace. But I would also say there needs to be place for that in retail. I mean, Starbucks got it right, right? I mean, they figured it out a few decades ago that it's not just about that cup of coffee. It's about the social connection of sitting, you know, sitting there and, and kind of having your coffee and seeing others and whether you say hi or not. Lots of our retail and F&B figured that out a long time ago. We're looking for that. And in fact, I get disappointed when I'm going into Starbucks and it's just a counter to pick it up. I'm like, oh, there's no place to sit down here. The expectation that the places in our lives add that social component. And, you know, and not to give us a pat on the back, but I am going to give us a pat on the back. A few years back, we created the Experience Index. And it's kind of coming back to life and, and you know, gaining um, some real focus because it, it predicted this. Um, if you look at the, the experience index, one of, you know, my favorite findings that I like to talk about is uh, when we, you know, surveyed uh, people in retail settings. And, you know, again, this was a huge ethnographic as well as survey uh, research deep dive that our teams did looking at what are the kinds of experiences that people expect in retail and are looking for in a retail environment, less than 50% was about the transaction. (laughs) I mean, you think people are going into a store to buy something. Well, 60% of what they're looking for is entertainment, F&B, social, inspiration, and learning, and then the transaction. And what we've also found is that if, you know, that the transaction, which is, of course, the goal of the, the company, that the transaction is more likely at least one of the other pieces is there. So doubling down on transaction space actually isn't the path to more sales. Adding some experience spaces is actually the way to get to more transactions. So I wanted to ask you about another meta trend, which is really important, and that's really about equitable design. And I'm proud of the firm in terms of what we're doing both inside the firm and then out there in the world to try and create social equity in our communities. Can you talk about that a little bit, some of our efforts and what we're doing? Yeah, absolutely. The last three years have been just a, uh, I would say, an accelerant. And I know everyone uses that word, but it, it really has been an accelerant. You know, none of the issues around, you know, social justice and, and equitableness in all aspects of, of life, you know, have always been there. And certainly as a firm, we have always been, and it's in fact one of the things I've always appreciated about the Gensler approach to design, uh, just to take a little bit of a side trip, you know, you get hired by, uh, you know, some big company to do their headquarters or their design. And I was, you know, really impressed that the first thing you would do is start interviewing people across the board in the organization. You know, I remember interviewing the mailroom team and interviewing, you know, admin assistants and people, you know, to really understand how many drawers of filing do you need and how much space do you need and how many slots of mailboxes do you need and respecting and and taking seriously every single role in the organization that to me was the essence of equitable design it wasn't just about okay how do we you know do a gold plated ceo suite it was really this notion that everybody mattered 
and that our design needed to enrich the experience of everyone in that organization if it was going to be a successful project. And that was really the ethos of, of the Gensler organization and the Gensler approach that I believe really has made a difference in the, you know, the success of so many companies and their ability to attract and retain talent. But, you know, this point about ex- equitable design is it goes even bigger and it's in, you know, it's about our communities, where we work, the kind of, of design that, you know, we all imagine for all parts of our cities. And then it's not just for, you know, kind of our downtown clients, but it's for our clients across, uh, you know, all neighborhoods in our cities. And so it, it has to do with the design itself, as I, you know, just spoke about and this is true even as we look at you know hospitality design that it's not this front of house back of house world where you create wonderful spaces for the the guests and then careless kinds of spaces for the people that work there you know at Gensler we focus on everyone's role within an organization and uh, making sure that we're making everyone's job better and in fact enhancing everyone's experience on that property but it's also, again, about in our cities and even who we work with. And I know that all of us are very proud of the work that we're starting to see being done all over the firm for clients that are, are working on tough projects in locations that you know we may not have even been thought of as the right design firm to do a project in the inner city or, or disinvested areas in Chicago or Cleveland or, you know, again, in, in any country in the world. And we're seeing more and more of that work. And I believe that the more work we are doing in helping those, uh, again, these are projects which often are complex, but are so critical to turning around certain areas, to bringing investment into those areas and helping those developers make those projects work by creating great design that really does, again, signal investment and, you know, again, uh, a hopeful and positive future. Um, I know you've got a lot to do and, and we're running out of time, I think, but maybe two more questions. I can't let you go without talking about Metatrend number five, which is decarbonization. It says the trend is decarbonization of the built environment continues to be the imperative of our time. So question is about that. I know, I know you've been personally passionate about, about designing against climate change and and leading the way for us. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we all in our industry uh, are, are focused on decarbonization. And uh, over the last several years, we have all really gotten our heads around the fact of how important our industry is in the fight to lower uh, the increase of uh, temperature on planet Earth through decarbonization, through the the reduction of greenhouse gases. It is a passion for me and for Andy and for all of our leadership because, uh, one, we see it crystal clear in front of us that our industry, I mean, we all know 40% of uh, carbon is associated with the built environment. So, that's more than the transportation industry. And we see what how they're changing the cars and man, making all these changes. We've got to do the same thing with our buildings. And we've got to electrify our buildings. We've got to put heat pumps in. We've got to, you know, look at every single lever that we can pull to decarbonize the new buildings that we're designing, help to transform existing buildings. 
And also something that I have focused a lot on, which is encouraging our supply chain to give us the, you know, the materials that we can specify because we will specify it because this is, you know, this is our mandate as a firm. And also saying, look, if you don't create those kinds of materials, we're not going to specify your JIP board anymore because we're going to go to another company that does have low carbon or no carbon, um, you know, uh, choices that we're able to to bring to our clients. And that's really the the driving piece as well is that our clients, you know, people always like, well, you're going to force your clients to decarbonize like it's kind of the other way around they are looking for ways to be able to make good on their ESG commitments so they've all made these ESG commitments of lowering carbon by 2025 or 2030 or 2050 and just like us uh, a big part of that is their facilities and being able to show that you know they are uh, bringing, you know, energy efficient, net zero facility, which had no uh, net new carbon into the environment. And then, of course, all the other touch points of carbon in their operations as well. But our clients are asking for this. So it's, you know, now it's our turn. We have to be able to deliver. And I'm super excited about the team across our firm that has put together the Climate Action Plan. Uh, the cap, as it's being called, um, it's aggressive, it's intense, and it it is a step by step how we're going to get there. We've committed to net zero and all our work by 2030. You know, we can't wake up in 2029 and flip a switch and then we're there. It's going to happen through a process, not the last minute. And we're beginning to really get our arms around this and putting the leadership in place and the practices in place, including our green spec. Um, that is is you know being rolled out over the next you know twelve months. So very exciting time for our firm. We know that all our people are you know a hundred percent behind this as well, and it's up to us as leaders to make sure that you know we're putting the the plan in place, the tools in place, the training in place, and you know letting our folks uh, continue to evolve as we move in this important direction. Well, it's exciting times and it's hopeful times too, I think. You know, there's a lot that we're doing and a lot that we can do. So working with our clients, I know we're going to make a difference. But uh, anyway, I, I wanted to ask you if you have any advice for young design professionals and students who are interested in pursuing a career in design and, and making a positive impact uh, on the world. So, yeah, I mean, first of all, um, I would say to any students or young person in our industry that you picked the best profession to be in at the best time ever, because this is where the dramatic changes are happening, where you really have an opportunity to make an impact and make a difference in the world and in people's lives. And also the scope is global. Um, and, you know, again, you're able to really speak to how you as an individual are making a difference in climate change. Uh, as it relates to social equity, as it relates to healthful cities and so forth. So I think it really aligns with um, wanting to have purpose in life. And, you know, again, you're, you're at the right place at the right time. And then just as, you know, kind of a final bit of personal uh, advice that I would share is, and I know this is going to sound uh, a little, you know, simple and simplistic, but 
the the power of showing up and the power of presence. You know, I think about the career that I've been able to have um, and, you know, at the firms I've been with that it would have been impossible for for me to learn what I needed to learn, uh, not being with other people. You know, some of the things that that I did, I mean, I literally, when I moved to D.C. and was leading the D.C. office, I, I literally commuted every day, three hours a day to be in that office every single day with that amazing team. And I, you know, I don't think that we would have been able to bring, to bring in so many amazing people to, you know, form the kind of, of unity that we had to be able to win jobs that, you know, were just impossible, but we did it and to deliver extraordinary design for our clients um, if we hadn't been together. And so I, I do feel like, you know, there's kind of a secret sauce in the showing up. And, you know, something my husband always says is, you know, a leader is someone who will do what other people won't. And it's a really interesting time to distinguish yourself by being with others, by being the person that shows up, by being the person who's there to um, define yourself as, as someone who is willing to, to go the extra. Well, that's great advice, Diane. We really appreciate it. You know, thank you so much again for sharing your insights and your expertise with us. We're going to hold you to that promise of coming to visit with Andy uh, soon, maybe sometime later on in the year. Uh, We'll roll out the red carpet again for you when you come again. So this is David Calkins, and I've been speaking with Diane Hoskins, co-CEO of Gensler. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next podcast.